Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles and open them to 1 Kings chapter 21. As we continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Kings, King Ahab, as we have learned, is very far from God in just about every area of his life. He was the most wicked, vile king in all of his, Israel's history. And, and before you simply just dismiss a statement like that, notice with me chapter 21, verse 25. Chapter 21, verse 25. We'll skip ahead just so you understand that the Bible records this truth for us. There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Ahab did more spiritual damage than any other king before him to date. And yet God continues to work with him. And God continues to pursue him. God continues to extend grace to him. Wooing him. Patiently waiting. Wanting to see repentance. And maybe even restoration in his life. This is one of those times with King Ahab where God demonstrates grace far beyond, I think, most of us would. Far beyond the kind of damage that he did, the kind of wickedness that he was involved in. Not, not, not just to a few people, but him and Jezebel just ruining the nation. And yet, even though God is patient with him and gracious with him, he still remains far from God. In our last chapter, we learned how Ben-Hadad, he was guilty. He, he was guilty before God He was the man Ahab should have killed. Instead, let him go. And today we meet innocent Naboth, a man he should have protected, and instead he kills. So the guilty he lets go, and the innocent he takes out. Just like the prophet Isaiah told us, you beware, woe to the person that calls good evil and evil good. And Ahab is an example of that today. You can jot it down in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15. It says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them are alike an abomination to the Lord. And you can write Ahab next to Proverbs 17, 15, because that's an example of exactly what is an abomination. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness and who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Verse 1, chapter 21. It came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near next to my house. And for it, I'll give you a vineyard better than it. Or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its worth in money. And Naboth said to Ahab, verse 3, The Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. And so Ahab went into his house, sullen and displeased, because of the word which Naboth, the Jezreelite, had spoken to him. 
For he had said, I will not give to you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Now Ahab is already discouraged. We know that from back in chapter 20 in verse 43, it says the king went to his house sullen and displeased and then came to, dis- to Samaria. He's already discouraged. And being rebuked, as he was being rebuked by the handling of King, uh, king Hadad, Ben Hadad, he senses that failure in his life. I, I, think it was a, I think personally it was a struggle in his life going from the reality of his potential. I, I think as much, God, as much as what God saw in him, I think he also recognized it in himself. But, but he's trapped in his evil and he's trapped in his decisions and, and it's a difficult thing. So he's discouraged here and he ends up passing by a field that he wants because it's next to his house, but it belongs to this guy by the name of Naboth. And he offers to buy it. But Naboth says, I won't give it up. Now jot it down, Leviticus chapter 25 in verse 23, that selling this land was actually forbidden. So Ahab is asking for something where Naboth is wise enough to say, no, I I don't want to trade and I don't want to sell it. It's my inheritance. And what happens with Ahab? He goes home pouting. He refuses to eat. He's sad. Which, Which gives us a little bit of insight here in the totality of Ahab's life here, as a king, he really has everything that a person would want. He has a palace, he has land, he has everything that he wants, but there's something that he doesn't have that he wants. There's a Bible word for that. It's called covetousness. It's one of the big 10 of God's warnings to us The Ten Commandments, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Covetousness is a serious sin in our lives. Here's a guy that has everything, and it it would be like, you know, having a huge mansion and everything that you could possibly want, and and then there's a home next to you, 800 square feet on a little postage stamp piece of property, and you want that too. It's not enough of everything that you have. You want that too. And he's coveting, and he wants it materialism will do that to you every time. Putting your heart and your mind and your desire into that which is material. Because no matter how much you get, you're always going to want more. And no matter what car you have, you're going to want the next model. And what phone you get, you're going to want the next. On and on, this, especially in our culture, in our world, there's just constantly mess, that message over and over and over and over again that what you have is not enough. What you have isn't good enough. What you have isn't new enough. Whether it's in the realm of our possessions, the house that you have is not big enough, the apartment you have, not large enough, on and on and on and on it goes. And I don't believe there's one person among us that doesn't fall into that from time to time. And it seems like everyone has a particular weakness when it comes to, so, so you say today, uh, you know, I'm not really a car person, Ed, so my car has 300,000 miles and, and it only has three wheels. I'm looking for the fourth right now and, you know, I push it and so I don't have a car issue so I can dismiss that and I'm not too much into, into you know, the phones and gadgets, but I bet you you're into something that just seems to always bring a sense of dissatisfaction. John D. Rockefeller, a man from Ohio, started Standard Oil. And Rockefeller was one, at one point the world's richest man and the first ever known American billionaire. 
And considering that he was a billionaire in the early 1900s, he was still considered as the richest person in modern history. And when he was interviewed for one of the many interviews that he did, when one reporter asked him, how much money is enough? His response was, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. A billionaire. How much is enough? When will it end? When will you have enough? Just a little bit more. Let me show you. Hold your places in Kings and, and, and let's just insert this. Uh, in the context of Ahab. Would you go to 1 Timothy chapter 6? 1 Timothy chapter 6. Pick up with me when you get there in verse 6. 1 Timothy 6, 6. As Paul is writing to young Timothy, training him, teaching him how to raise up men in the ministry, how to raise up men in the church. Notice in verse 6 he says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it's certain that we can carry nothing out. Verse eight. And having food and clothing with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed in the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves. Contentment, or that covetousness in our lives, the greediness, pierces ourselves with many sorrows. And if this is an issue in your life, we develop this in the studies through the book of Philippians. So you just go onto the app or on the web and go through the, the studies through Philippians, and Paul deals with that in a chapter with learning to be content. And we develop it much more there. But come back to chapter 21 of Kings again and pick up in verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? And she said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money or else. If it pleases you, I'll give you another vineyard. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Basically, Ahab's saying, I I told this man to give me his land and he wouldn't give me his land. And so Jezebel, I mean, this is a wicked gal, man. She is over the top wicked. His wife says, now, you now exercise authority over Israel. Arise and eat food and let your heart be cheerful. I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And so she wrote letters in Ahab's name. Sealed them with his seal sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city of Naboth. And she wrote in the letters saying, proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people and seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him saying, you have blasphemed God and the king. And then take him out and stone him that he may die. Jezebel will have none of this discouragement. She's the, hey, you're the king, man. Let me take care of this for you. And working behind the scenes, she finds out the issue and sets up Naboth's assassination. Plain and simple. Verse 11. So the men of his city, the elders, the nobles, who were inhabitants of the city, did as Jezebel had sent to them, as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast, seated Naboth both with high honor among the people, and two men, scoundrels, came in and sat before him, and the scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. Then they took him outside the city and stoned him with stones so that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned 
and is dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give to you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And so it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead that Ahab got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. The plan of Jezebel worked perfectly as the letters she wrote in King Ahab's name were followed exactly. And, and we, don't, we, we don't want to spend too much time on this, but notice that people will lie when they're asked to lie. In some cases, in Jesus' case, they'll, they'll lie when they're paid to lie. And, and why the wisdom of God is so valuable to us to not believe something we hear without hearing the other side to get both sides. Even, even the world system in which we live understands that. They, they say it this way. There's always three sides to the story. Your side, their side, and the truth. Uh, even the world understands this concept. They may, not fully, they may not fully live it. They may not fully live it out in their lives. But for us as believers, the Bible says, the first one to plead his case sounds right until his neighbor comes and reproves him. And, and people, even believers, will give up their own character and give up their own integrity to lie about another believer or to lie about someone. And, and our default needs to be to seek the Lord first, to receive, you know, even with the leaders and within the church, you know, the elders, the Bible says, don't receive an accusation against an elder except by two or three witnesses. Like the reality of confirmation. So these scoundrels, I, I like that, that, that translation, these scoundrels, they lie, and their lies led to the death of Naboth, which always reminds us that lies lead to the death of someone's character, someone's integrity, someone's reputation, and we need to walk in the truth as believers. I thought if there's ever going to be a truthful group of people on the earth today, it needs to be us, followers of Jesus who came in both grace and truth. He's the epitome of grace and truth in Jesus. He lives inside of us. Living God dwells inside of us, and we too then walk in his truth. Verse 17 now. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Just a side note here, Elijah's been about six years. It's been about six years since Elijah's been on the scene. So if you want to draw it in your margin there, uh, it's been about six years since Elijah, the last time we've heard about Elijah. The word of the Lord comes to Elijah, arise, go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth. Notice, even though Naboth died and even though Ahab took possession, even though it belongs in Ahab's mind, what does the Bible say? It's still the vineyard of Naboth. Still belongs to him where he has gone down to take possession of it, you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. Then Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I found you, because you've sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I'll bring calamity on you, I'll take away your posterity and cut off, cut, and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free, and I'll make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of, ba- house of Basha, son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, verse 23, the Lord also spoke, saying, the dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of 
Jezreel. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. It's not easy to be a prophet, to speak forth the words of God. It's not easy to exercise the gift of exhortation. Not everybody wants to hear a word that's going to move them forward or bring about rebuke or correction in their lives. It's not easy to stay in the Bible and to read the Bible every day because when you do read the Bible, it becomes a mirror and you get tired of seeing the mirror reflecting back to you as the Holy Spirit confirms in your heart the reality of where you are compared to where God wants you. A lot of times when you're starting the reading through the Bible in the beginning of the year and you've made that commitment, I'm going to go through Genesis all the way to Revelation, I'm going to follow this plan or I'm going to do this plan on my phone, and, and you get through Genesis, you get through Exodus, and then sometimes you think, well, Leviticus is so hard, I'm not going to get through Leviticus, but it's not just that Leviticus can be a difficult book to go through. That's not just it. By the time you get to Leviticus, through Genesis and Exodus, God has revealed so much to you in your life. And you might even sense a weariness in your life to go, man. And then you get to, you know, you kind of slow your roll in Leviticus, but in reality, Leviticus is a book on holiness. And as you're reading through about the holiness of God and the requirements of God, and there's sacrifice after sacrifice, and, and there, are, there, there is God saying, this is how I want to relate to you, I believe it's not just a practical reason why we stop reading the Bible through the year. It's also spiritual. If, if you look at your own Bible reading this last week or the last month, why is it that you have neglected? Why is it that we've neglected the Word of God? Why is it that we still keep up on the news? And why is it that we still know what pictures are posted on Instagram? And why is it that we know every false thing and every weird thing in, on Facebook? And, and why is it that we still have Twitter but we haven't been in the Word of God. I suggest to you that it's a spiritual problem, that, that it is a, a problem of disconnect between you and God, between me and God. It's a smaller version of what God said to the church in Ephesus, that you've left your first love. Because love always builds anticipation, wanting to hear from the Lord, desiring to hear why is it that we avoid Bible study? Why is it that we will avoid Bible study and give it a break for a couple weeks? Or I suggest that it's a spiritual issue in our lives. It's a relational issue. It's, man, it's hard to receive a hard word from the Lord. Everything in the Bible is not going to be super encouraging Everything in the Bible is not going... Why? Because the Bible tells the truth about the matters of which it speaks. And in order to learn the truth of the matters of which it speaks, we need to hear the truth. So your response when somebody comes to you with the truth tells you a lot about your personal walk with the Lord. You could blame it on them. Oh, they weren't nice enough. Or they didn't... You can blame it on them all you like. And, and it could be that we delivered it wrong, we used the wrong words, it, it, absolutely. But the reality is, the closer you are to the Lord, it won't matter how it's delivered. It won't matter how it's delivered because the Lord's already been speaking to you about it and he's already been leading you about it. And you're like, man, I know that brother could have been nicer, I know that sister could, yeah, I know, but man, Lord, thank you for sending them anyway. 
because sometimes a hard word is, even if it's delivered with roses and candy, it's still going to be hard. And it's still going to be difficult. And Elijah here, this is a hard word. You're gonna, you're, dogs are going to lick your blood, man. And Jezebel, they're going to eat her. Oh, that's a hard word. So you're in so much trouble, Ahab. You're so stinking wicked that you're going to have a nasty ending. Your life is going to end horrifically. And here he is after six years of silence. He comes on the scene. For six years of Elijah, he has been in what some would call, and I'd call it a season of silence. He's in a season of silence, what, what we would often refer to as a time of waiting on the Lord. We don't have any, in, we don't have any insight of what was, he, what was he doing for these years, or what were, he just off the scene and then he's on the scene and there's a six year waiting period uh, of time of silence in his life. And, and these are hard times for us, times of silence. They're very difficult for us to deal with. They're, they're very hard for us to endure. Silence, any type of silence. We live in such a noisy, chaotic world that's always going, always going. If, it, if it's not the, the buzz from 225, it's the buzz of a plane going over. If it's not the buzz, and then it's a car up and down the street. And if it's not that, it's the barking dog three doors down. If it's not the barking dog, it's the kids playing in the park. If it's not the kids playing, it's the, it's the refrigerator. It's making that buzz again. Why can't it just be silent in our house? And if it's not the refrigerator, it's the ice, if it's not the ice maker, it's like we live. There, there isn't really a time where we could have the kind of silence that we're looking for. And silence is hard to endure. I haven't even been silent for 30 seconds. And some of you in your mind is, what is he doing? What kind of trick is he doing? What is, it's, it's hard. It's hard to wait on the Lord. It's hard to wait in times of silence. Our minds are just not willing to accept silence as from the Lord. Our minds are, are not willing to accept that this is silence from the Lord, so our minds naturally stir up all sorts of thoughts and ideas and even weird stuff. And we feel, we get to the conclusion where we feel like we have to do something to break the silence. And so our enemy will take that and, and take advantage of that and then join in on the attack and attack your mind and attack your thinking. But if you're in a time of waiting in silence, it's important for you to stay close to Jesus in abiding in him and remain open to him and learn patience and endurance and perseverance. Learn to wait for that confident word from him. Fill yourself with God's word during this time. Submit to his spirit and be available to move in a moment's notice when his word comes. Let me show you an insight on that. Would you turn over to Matthew 25? Matthew 25. Jesus gives us a parable in instructing us how to wait. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus shares and teaches us insight on what it means to wait. And he, he says in verse one, the kingdom of heaven will be likened to 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise. How many were wise? 
five, and then five were foolish. Now we have a parable that's going to give us insight by contrast. It's not the first time Jesus uses contrast to teach us. He's going to contrast us the wise, five wise and the five foolish. Here, here's verse three. Those who were foolish took their lamps but took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. The backdrop for this is a Jewish wedding ceremony. It is the anticipation it was a grand celebration, the anticipation of the bridegroom to come. There was, there was, in a Jewish wedding, there were three distinct parts to it. The first was the engagement period, which began really after birth as parents made the decisions of who they were going to set their kids up with. We don't do that too much anymore, but some I hear want to bring it back. But the engagement period. Then there came the espousal period. This was usually the year prior to, cer- to the ceremony. The groom would go out and settle in a home and a career and get things in order. And as far as the espousal period, they were as good as married without the consummation. And then finally came the wedding ceremony. Unexpectedly, the groom would return to his bride unannounced and the entire village would be waiting in anticipation. And so here we isolate, Jesus isolates 10. Five were wise, five for foolish and Really the essence of foolishness that Jesus is saying here is that it's foolish not to be ready. It's foolish not to be ready. It is not wise for us to look at the bridegroom in his delay and not be ready. Instead, in verse 5, just slumbering and sleeping. You follow the characteristics of a fool throughout the scriptures and you see a fool carries so many uh, character traits that are not valuable, they're not desirable. A fool denies God exists according to Psalm 53. A fool is prone to gossip, Proverbs chapter 10 verse 18. A fool refuses sound counsel, Proverbs chapter 12 verse 15. And here their foolishness is because they're not ready. And during the delay they fall asleep and no longer anticipate their return. In the delay, there is that tendency to just fall asleep and fill the delay with activity and with action. It says in verse six, at midnight a cry was heard and behold the bridegroom is coming to go out and meet him. And then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, no, lest you should, that there should not be enough for us and you, you go rather to those who sell and buy it for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the son of man is coming. This is a parable of readiness. Of course, it's a picture of the kingdom of God and the return of Jesus Christ. But as we pull back from it, there's great application in learning to be ready and not relying on others, but rather relying upon the Lord. Waiting is hard, and yet it's profitable. Waiting in silence is hard, and yet it's profitable. And we know it's profitable from the times that we've waited and God has revealed himself to be faithful. So come back. 
to 1 Kings. Be wise, be ready, and stay in a place of readiness. There's so much to that parable that, that you can go back in our studies in Matthew and listen to, but the readiness is really important because if you stay in that place of readiness, then you're staying in that place of waiting. Readiness equals waiting. Not falling asleep. I mean, I think there's an application of that too as, as, as we're waiting on the Lord. It's easy for the church to slumber and sleep as if the Lord's not coming back. I, and from such an anticipation of the soon return of Jesus, and now a lot of the church is saying today, oh, don't worry. You guys, you guys that emphasize prophecy and you guys that are reading the newspaper and all the current events, oh, don't, don't even, don't do that. And, and demeaning and diminishing the return of the Lord. Listen, the expectant return of the Lord, the Bible says, automatically begins to work holiness and purity in your lives. Because if you expect the Lord to come back at any time, your readiness will reflect that in your life choices. But if we're just living for today and we're slumbering and sleeping spiritually, then we're going to be surprised at his coming and not ready. And Elijah now comes after six years of silence and he rebukes Ahab. Dogs are going to lick your blood. And Ahab is here. Jezebel is the one that did this. Jezebel's the one that arranged this, but Ahab is held responsible for it. Ahab's held responsible. Why? Well, he's the leader of his home. He's the king of Israel. His sulking and his whining instigated her actions, and he cast Naboth in an unfavorable light to her. It all started with him, not with her. And so Ahab, verse 20, he looks at Elijah in verse 20, he says, you're my enemy. Now, the answer to that, that's actually a true statement and a false statement. It's true because Ahab has set himself up in, his, in idolatry as an enemy of God and so that anybody coming on behalf of God would be an enemy. So that's true, but I don't believe that's where Ahab is at right now. I don't think he's making some spiritual uh, statement here. He looks, at Ahab, he looks at Elijah and he just says, you know what, you're my enemy. I don't like what you have to say to me. I don't like anything that you've done with me and basically is writing him off before he's able to finish what he was sharing. But he's telling Ahab the truth. Anyone that's willing to tell you the truth is not an enemy. Actually, I'd put into the category of enemy or, or really lacking in friendship someone that looks me in the eye and lies to me. That doesn't sound like a friend to me, <laughs> that someone knows the truth but will look me in the eye uh, and lie to me. That, that's not a good thing. The truth is hard for Ahab. Calamity is coming. His posterity is leaving. And for Jezebel, you know, dogs are going to eat her. It's just crazy. Insanity of what happens, the end result of unconfessed, unrepentant sin. Again, we'll revisit the, the need of men and women in our lives who share the truth with us. Iron sharpening iron, especially when we need to hear it. And Elijah's not Ahab's enemy here. He's a friend as he shares the truth. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Well, in verse 25, there was no one like Ahab, this is 1 Kings 21, there's no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up and he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. 
And so it was when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, see now Ahab has humbled himself before me because he's humbled himself before me. I will not bring the calamity in his days, but in the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. God's assessment of Ahab is that he was the worst ruler in Israel to date. Just as bad as the Canaanites, the Amorites, all of the ites before him. But in verse 27, Ahab has a res- an emotional response to this. That many commentators would say that verse 27 represents Ahab's repentance. And the question then would be, did Ahab really repent? Did Ahab really repent? And the only way that we can answer that question is by what the Bible says. And according to verse 29, we just have to take God's word for it because God saw his heart and what, he, what, what happened in verse 27, God says that he humbled himself and he accepted that hum- humility and now the calamity is going to pass over a generation. God accepted his repentance as real and genuine. And yet, there's no place in the scriptures that ever say Jezebel changed. There's no place in the Bible that ever says she repented or surrendered her will or anything like that. And what it tells us today as we close the chapter is that humbling ourselves and repenting opens up doors of joy and excitement and brings back that relationship with the Lord. I mean, I I don't know about you, but I was just thinking if there was going to be a scripture written about me somehow or if there was going to be some final article written about my life or anything about, I mean, it's not going to be perfect. The article is not going to say he was a perfect man, never made any mistakes. Definitely not going to say that. But I'll tell you what, I don't want it to say what verse 25 says. I can't, I can't make the article say Ed was a perfect man and never made a mistake. That's foolish. That never happened. But I can avoid verse 25 where, you know, can you imagine? I'm not even going to do it. I don't even want to hear it. You can put your own name in there. Don't say Ahab. Put your own name in there if, if you need to. I, I don't even want to put my name in there. But there was no one like Ahab. I can't put my name in there who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord. But even if you're here today and you're listening to this Bible study and you say, I'm Ahab, that paragraph could describe my life. Fortunately, there's still verse 27 in Ahab's life and in yours that today you can make a real significant change in your life if you will humble yourself before God and admit that you've sinned. What we call that confession. The Greek word in the New Testament when it speaks of confessing your sins means to agree with God. When you confess your sins, you're agreeing with God that you see sin in your life the same way God sees sin in in your life. You confess them. And then when you turn away from them and you turn away from that behavior, the Bible calls that repentance. Repentance. You confess and you repent of your sins. And it is a, by doing that, that is an act of humility. There are times when I'm ministering to someone and they're sharing some difficult thing in their life. 
and they're getting it off their chest and they're repenting and they felt like they needed to tell a pastor or they needed and and there'll be times that it's just so difficult to hear and and I I think man how hard it must be for the person to tell me I mean if it's hard to hear can you imagine how hard it is to tell someone else and in many ways like I'm I'm not their dad I'm not their um, brother I'm I'm a pastor in God's church, but it's not like we hang out all the time and, and we're over at boondocks playing games together. Like this is someone that is sitting down with someone that they've really never shared anything like that before. And there'll be times when it's so, that emotion is so strong where I'll just say, you know, not only, not only is it a good thing that you confess this to the Lord, but I thank you for trusting me with what you said, that I'm the tool that God would use in your life to get right with him. And it doesn't have to be a pastor. So you know, when you, you think about, well, Ed, if you're up open for confession, then I'm going to get in line. No, no, no. It doesn't have to be me. The Bible says in James that you can confess your sin to one another. A lot of people don't like to do that. They like to cover up their sin. Confessing your sin to another doesn't mean that person forgives you. Like it's not, they don't, they're not God in your life. But when you admit sin, you humble yourself. There are times when people will commit a sin and they'll, their sin is actually involving someone else. And they'll come and they confess it. And then the, almost immediately the first thing is, well, did you tell the person? No, 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 I didn't tell the person. Why would I tell the person? I got it right with God. Because you sinned against the person. Well, no, 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 that's going to make things worse. No, actually lying to them every day of your life is making things worse. The only way that God will bring freedom in our lives is to walk in the light as he is in the light. Then we share life together. Or the Bible says we have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship with God. And humility is the way out. Even if something could be written for your life right now, you go, you know, I look back and I've just failed miserably. I've done wickedness. Well, you can repent today. And God can do a work in your heart and your life in the days that you have left. He can take you and move you forward away, farther and farther away from your failures of your past and give you a newness of life, even as a believer, even as a believer. He wants to free you and release you. And he wants you to have dignity that's only found by faith of righteousness in Christ Jesus. So Father, as we turn our hearts towards you today and, and we we close a chapter on, on Ahab, just such a wicked man. And yet, you call what he does at the end humility, that he's humbled himself, and it even moved you, God. It moved you, this, this relationship you had with Ahab, and as bad as it was, you, the, the judgment would skip as you sovereignly used this humility to accomplish your purposes on the earth. And so I just pray, there's some listening that, that really, they look back on their lives and it's, it's bad. There's no other way to put it. But as they turn to you, Lord, and they have a real change of heart and mind, they confess, they repent, and they respond to the inward work of your spirit, you work in their lives. You're merciful and you're gracious 
and you're patient with us. Lord, I pray for those that are in a season of silence right now where they have some prayer requests that they're laying before you that you've yet to answer and their minds are running and they're all over the place. Would you comfort them right now, God, to come alongside of them and fill their minds with you and your presence? Maybe give them a memory of a faithfulness in the past or give them a scripture that they memorized that might comfort and encourage them in the silence. For those that just are set on doing wickedness right now, God, and they may not even want to believe it or admit it, but they've just been actively uh, sinning against you, Lord, that would you release them and deliver them like by the work of your spirit today? Would you restore to them uh, a, a holiness and like the, pro, like, um, like the parable in Matthew, like we would have a readiness about us? That there would be a true expectation, Lord, of not only like in that parable, an expectation of your soon return, but also in silence, an expectation of your answer to not sleep and slumber as the silence carries on, Lord, but to actively press in. Would you forgive us, God, for our prayerlessness and our lack of just really pressing in like that persistent widow did? Just pressing in, pressing in, pressing in. That even if a wicked judge would answer her, how much more a loving God would answer our prayers? And so, Lord, give us the strength to press in. Clear our minds that we might hear a word from you. That like Elijah received before, that we would have ears to hear a still small voice speaking a word of answer into our hearts and our minds, Lord. Let us rise up as the church. Be the church, God, loving people and serving people. Even as I was reading and listening today, Lord, like, you gave that story, that parable of the servant that did what his master told him to do. And, and not that expectation of a thank you or like we are servants so we do what you tell us to do. And we're pleased just in the obedience. Would you restore that to some listening right now that we would just be pleased in the obedience? That it would just warm our hearts to know that we heard from you and we did what you told us to do. And so, Lord, pour out your spirit on us. Let tonight be a night that glorifies you and honors you in every way. I pray that nobody gets ripped off as they head out of the parking lot, get mad on the street or somebody cut them off or they got a text that they're going to see or an email or, <clears throat> Lord, just give people a break from social media and and uh, they don't need to check it till tomorrow, you know? It doesn't need to be, they don't even need to check it tonight. They don't even need to check their email tonight, Lord. They could just go on and, and leave here, just going to bed with you on their minds, just meditating on the scriptures. How many times, God, has people been ripped off because they had the word of God and then social media just ripped it out of their hearts? Like they were right there and they're gonna chew on something and then, hey, don't you know this new whatever? It's a, it's a strange world that we live in right now, Lord, pressing in to take our attention away from you. It's just a strange world, never before. This is a generation that's 
seen things never before. So we need a supernatural anointing of grace to persevere in a strange culture. Um, I'm sure if we lived in the first century, we'd think it was strange then too, because it was for the first century. But here we are 21 centuries now, and, and it's stranger still. So raise up your church, Lord, that we might be living in, in your spirit, godly, desiring to, to live in a way that pleases you. And we don't want to be Ahab. Not as, no, we don't want to live and have some scripture written. We just don't want that. We just lay that before you, Lord. And I just pray, if somebody's even planning sin right now, like they're thinking about it, they're calculating it, they're weighing the ups and downs and how it might be, Lord, would you convict them? Just convict them. They don't need to be wasting their time planning to sin, but rather investing their time in worshiping the King. And so just be with them, Lord. Like, give them a heart for you. Be glorified here in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.